Greetings on this annual Sabbath, the Feast of Trumpets. We here in Charlotte, North Carolina, send you greetings, and we wish you an inspiring and uplifting annual holy day, the Feast of Trumpets. Today is the first day of the seventh month on God's calendar. In Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, verse 23, we see the subhead in the King James Version, the Feast of Trumpets. In Hebrew, it's Rosh Hashanah. So if you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus, the 23rd chapter, verse 23. Then the Lord, the Eternal, spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal. And, of course, that was under the Levitical priesthood. We don't offer fire today, but we do offer offerings. So that was the first day, that is the first day of the seventh month in God's calendar. In the book of Revelation, we find an understanding of the blowing of trumpets. The book of Leviticus gives us very little information, just a memorial of the blowing of trumpets. But when we see the panorama of God's all annual holy day, the annual festivals, we see the big picture and we have an understanding of God's plan of salvation. We've already observed Passover, the days of unleavened bread, and Pentecost. And now with the Feast of Trumpets, we have an understanding from the book of Revelation. If you'll turn to Revelation, the 11th chapter, and this is always read at the Feast of Trumpets, and if you've not already heard the companion sermon for today titled, The Finish Line, I recommend you listen to it. We know that the seventh seal of Revelation 8, the 8th chapter, consists of seven trumpet plagues. And we know that the seventh seal also represents the one-year day of the Lord, the year preceding the return of Christ. So most of us are familiar with the inspiring announcement in Revelation 11 and verse 15. The seventh of seven angels sounds. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What a wonderful announcement that is. And our destiny is to meet Christ in the air for the beginning of that reign over all nations, over the whole earth. Turn to First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. You might hold your place in Revelation 11. But First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 16. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. We are destined to meet Christ in the air. Verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This is the last trumpet of seven trumpets. And the dead in Christ will rise first. We look forward to our loved ones who sleep in Jesus, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, who sleep in Christ. We look forward to being reunited with them. They will rise first. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The emphasis in the sermon is going to be meeting the king. We meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So wherever the Lord goes, we will be with him. When he's with the Father, we will be with him. And we will see the Father because, as Jesus prayed, that they may be one, Father, just as you and I are one. That's in the prayer of John, the 17th chapter. Verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. My question for you today is, will you be prepared to meet the king? Will you be prepared for the seventh trumpet? And will you greet the king of kings with praise and joy? The title of the sermon today is, Prepare to Meet the King. Let's turn back again to Revelation, the 11th chapter, and verse 15. 
We want to see just how people will receive Jesus Christ when he comes, when the announcement is made. What will be the reaction of the nations? What will be your reaction when you hear that seventh trumpet? Let's read that again in Revelation 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the good news we're looking forward to hearing. Verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their face and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty. God is Almighty the one who is and who was and who is to come. In some translations, references to Christ, he is the coming one. He is the one to come. And, of course, eventually God the Father will come with the new Jerusalem, as we read later on in Revelation. Verse 18, how did the nations respond to this announcement? The nations were angry and your wrath has come. Why? Because you have taken your great power and reigned. Yes, God is giving mankind 6,000 years of experimentation, but there comes a time when that ends, and we introduce, God introduces the 1,000-year reign of Christ with the saints for a 1,000 years. But the nations who are not accept Christ with joy and praise, as we should. Verse 18, the nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And, of course, how do we prepare? Part of the message today is how do we prepare to meet the king? We have part of the answer right here in verse 18. And those who fear your name, small and great, are going to receive that reward. So we understand the name of Christ, the name of God the Father, and the authority and the power and the character by which those names represent. We fear God's name, small and great. We have that awe and we have that reverence because we know that God can do anything. Let's turn to Exodus, the 19th chapter. Let's take a look at how some others accepted or reacted to the presence of God. Exodus, the 19th chapter. How did Israel respond when God visited them at Mount Sinai? Just what was their reaction? Exodus 19 and verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Yes, they feared God, but it was more of a human fear rather than the godly fear. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. They were meeting with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain, Now, the Mount Sinai was completely in a smoke because the Eternal descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. So how did they respond? They trembled. Moses led the people to meet with God. Again, what was their reaction? Chapter 20. Of course, God spoke. That was probably the voice of that was the voice of uh, the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, of Jesus Christ. And here we find in Exodus, the 20th chapter, how they responded. Verse 19, Then they said to Moses, that is Israel, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. They were so, they had no faith at all. They said, we don't want to hear God speak to us. They heard God speak to them. And yet they said, we don't want that. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be for you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Notice verse 22. Then the Eternal said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. 
God is coming to this earth. And he spoke to the people of Israel, but they reacted in a way that said, we don't want to listen to you. We'd rather hear a voice of a human. How do we respond? Today we come to the heavenly Mount Zion. Let's turn to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. They were before Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God. But in Hebrews 12, we have a personal relationship with God the Father. We have a reverence for God. We have a godly fear, not a terror, but an awe and a reverence. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, verse 18. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest. Of course, that was Mount Sinai that we just read about. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned and shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. And of course, God says in Isaiah 66, 2, To this man will I look, to him that is poor and with contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. Notice verse 22, Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, it's the heavenly Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Do you think about that when you pray? To innumerable company of angels, millions of angels about God's throne, and to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Human beings do not have an immortal soul, but the spirit goes to God. And then, of course, the person is still dead in the grave. They're sleeping in Jesus, as it says in First Thessalonians 4. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we become come before the throne of God, our Father in heaven, and to Jesus, who is there as well. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promising yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. We understand God loves us, and he wants us to have that confidence that comes from a godly fear and a love that casts out all human fear. But we have a godly reverence towards God. We have regular contact of God in heaven. We have daily prayer. But how will you greet Christ on the day when the seventh trumpet blows? How do you greet him now? Let's take a look at how some greeted Christ in the past. We need to prepare to meet the king. When you think of this question... How will you greet Christ at his coming? Let's take a look at how men did greet Christ when he appeared to them in the past. Jesus confronted the Jews of his days. Here was the Son of Man, the Son of God, here on this earth. And he came to his own, and his own received him not, the Scriptures tell us. John, the eighth chapter. How did they receive the Messiah? John 8, starting with verse 53. John 8. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham? The Jews were challenging Jesus. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me of whom you say he is your God. You have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. They were liars, Jesus said, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? John 8, verse 58. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that was the name of God when Moses asked, What shall I tell the people of Israel your name? And he said, I am that I am. 
That's the God's name. And the eternal, the Lord of the Old Testament, was the one who became Jesus Christ of the New. He said to them, Before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. So how did they receive God on earth, the Son of God, the Son of Man? How did they meet with him? They took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. There are many other examples. We'll take a few of those uh, examples. I'll just refer, refer you to Genesis, the second chapter, where God commanded the man... Genesis 2.16, not to take of the tree of, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, after they did, they heard God's voice in uh, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 11. And how did they respond? Did they run out to meet him? No, they were ashamed of themselves, and they did not greet the Lord. What did they do? They hid themselves. And then, of course, they were driven out of the garden. Well, that's how Adam and Eve greeted Christ, the one who became the the Christ of the New Testament. Let's turn to uh, Genesis, the 18th chapter, Genesis 18. And again, Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, met with the Lord. When you think of the many different examples in which God has actually appeared to man many times in the Bible... Genesis 18 and verse 1. It's inspiring to think of how we will meet the king. Genesis 18, 1. Then the eternal, the Lord, appeared to him, this is Abraham, by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he, Abraham, lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest under yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. And after that, you may pass by in as much as you've come to your servant. They said, Do as you said. And so even Abraham went to the herd, verse 7, and got a tender and good calf and had it prepared. They took butter and milk and the calf, verse 8, and set it before them. And so here, how did Abraham receive the Lord? He prepared a meal for him, had a, a meal prepared for Christ and the angels. What an awesome opportunity. And if Jesus were to come to your home today, how would you greet him? Remember, as Jesus said in Matthew 25, inasmuch as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And of course, after that, uh, following uh, Abraham pleaded uh, with God for uh, Lot and his family in Sodom, which was going to be destroyed, and he negotiated with the Lord, the one who became Christ, the Yahweh, the Eternal, and said, well, if there are... 50 righteous, will you destroy the city with the righteous? And, and of course, he negotiated them down to 10, and there were not 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, of course, it was destroyed. But Abraham received Christ and uh, showed great host, uh, hospitality. Let's take a look at one other example. Uh, Jacob, in uh, Genesis, the 32nd chapter, how did he meet the Lord? Jacob... In Genesis 32, verse 24, the subhead is wrestling with God. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw he did not prevail against him, he, capital H-E, meaning the Lord, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said, what is your name, Jacob? And he said, verse 28, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So he became a prince with God, which is the meaning of the word Israel. 
Now notice verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. What inspiring example after example of the times when the one who became Jesus Christ, the God of the Old Testament, was with God, with people, with Abraham and with Isaac, and even met Moses face to face. I won't take turn there, but I'll give you the reference, Exodus 33, verse 11. And when even Moses asked God to show him his glory, he said, well, he showed him his back. And then the elders, 70 elders, saw God. You read that in Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. And then all Israel saw the cloud by day and the fire by night for 40 years. They were following the one who became Christ. And then Joshua worshipped the Lord, as it says in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15. And so we find throughout the Old Testament many times in which the Lord, the Eternal, the Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament who called himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, met with the saints, with the prophets, with the patriarchs, and uh, they welcomed him in various ways. And, of course, Jacob wrestled with the one who became the Christ of the New Testament. So how will we meet Christ when he comes? Let's take a look at our calling in Matthew, the 25th chapter. Matthew 25. Take a sip of tea here. Matthew, the 25th chapter, and, of course, this chapter has great meaning on the Feast of Trumpets. Matthew 25, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Brethren, that's a message on the Feast of Trumpets for us. And that cry has been going out for decades in our modern era, in the era of the Philadelphia church and then the Laodicean era. That cry still goes out. The bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. We must prepare to meet the king when he comes. At midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Verse 7. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Oil is a symbol in this parable of the Holy Spirit. And they were not renewing God's Holy Spirit. They were not stirring up God's Spirit. But the wise answered, verse 9, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready, those who were ready, that means us, brethren, those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, And the door was shut. When we meet Christ in the air, we will go to the wedding and the wedding supper. We'll talk about that a little later. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. We certainly know the general time because he says, These are the parables, so you shall know when the Son of Man is coming. We do not know the day or the hour, but we will know the the general time when he is coming. God has spent time on earth with human beings, and yet we have direct access daily to God. And we are preparing, just as Moses met face-to-face with God, we are preparing to meet face-to-face with the king the bridegroom, and his wife will make herself ready. And, of course, as it tells us in Matthew 5, verse 8, 
that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Brethren, God has called us to meet the king when he comes. How are you preparing to meet him? We saw that the foolish virgin said to the wise, give us some of your oil. How do we prepare? By making sure we always have oil in our lamps. And he said in verse 13 of Matthew 25, watch therefore. How else do we prepare? By watching under prayer, by being alert to the signs of the times, as Jesus told the Jews of his day, you can discern the signs of the weather, but you don't know the signs of these times. The Messiah had come, prophesied throughout all the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and they did not know the sign of his, the times. So how do we prepare to meet the king? We make sure we have oil in our lamps, and we are alert and watchful. And we must also then, brethren, ask God for his spirit. Let's turn to Luke, the 11th chapter. Luke 11, one of my favorite promises in the Bible. Luke 11 and verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, you know, human, normal, human love and affection, you give good good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit To those who ask him, are you renewing God's Holy Spirit in you daily? Are you asking for the Holy Spirit? Of course, in Matthew's account, he said, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? But we need to renew God's Holy Spirit, and we need to stir it up. You know that scripture in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, the first chapter, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Yes, Timothy apparently seemed to indicate a certain reticence or fearfulness, and the Apostle Paul is giving him strong encouragement, strong exhortation. Stir up the gift that is in you by the laying on of my hands, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Yes, of love and of power and of a sound mind. And you know, First John 4.18, perfect love casts out fear. Pray for that perfect love of God. Stir up the gift of God's Holy Spirit in you. How else are we going to prepare to meet the King? By fulfilling our mission, by fulfilling our calling. Again, we've repeated this so many times, but it's so significant and fundamental. John, the fourth chapter, John 4. What is your motivation? What is your reason for getting up in the morning? What is your crusading spirit? What is your mission? Jesus said in John 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Are you praying daily that God's will be done in your life, not your will? And, you're, of course, God says there are certain things that, that are of your prerogative, of your choice. So delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's one of God's promises in the Psalms. So he says here, My food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We have a mission, and how we grow in the very spirit and nature and mind of Christ is by doing the will of God and by doing his work. What is our mission? Again, you know that, but let's review it on this Feast of Trumpets. Matthew, the 28th chapter. Matthew 28. We have accepted that and we mission, and we consider it to be very vital for our very spiritual life. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's Matthew 28, verse 18. The King James says, All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Christ has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth. We ask and we pray in his name and his authority. But he gives us this instruction in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mission. And yet, along with that mission, we have the promise of God's power. We have the promise of Christ's presence. He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark 16 and verse 15 is another description of our mission. Mark 16 and verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And we're trying to do that with all our heart as God gives us the power and the resources. And we thank you, brethren, for your support and your prayers and your heart in the God's work. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he does not believe will be condemned or judged. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues or languages. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. But we have a mission. That's how we prepare to meet the king. Will you be faithful in your preparation? Let's turn to Matthew, the 25th chapter. Again, that's right after the parable of the wise and foolish virgins that we just read. Matthew, the 25th chapter, we have the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, starting with verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on his journey. And then, of course, he called them to give account afterwards. And the one, uh, after a long time, verse 19, the Lord of the servants came and settled accounts with them. Verse 20, so he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice this, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter you into the joy of your Lord. We are called to be faithful in the responsibilities God has given us now. In the parable of the minas, likewise, in Luke, the 19th chapter, take a brief look at that as we prepare to meet the king. Matthew, the 19th chapter, I'm sorry, Luke, the 19th chapter. And again, this is the parable of the minas. And remember the one servant, verse 17, who had earned ten minas, he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little, have authority over ten cities. Luke 19 and verse 17. Dr. Meredith has given a program on the world's most vital need, which is righteous government. And God has called us to learn how to be faithful over our own responsibilities so that we can serve that we can even rule or have authority over ten cities, not for our own aggrandizement, but for the benefit and for the profitability of those whom we serve. But we must be faithful in very little. We've seen our calling in our mission. We've seen that the cry went out at midnight, go out to meet the king, he's coming, the bridegroom. But let's take a look at Christ's first coming because The Feast of Trumpets relates to Christ's first coming as well. What can we learn from that? It's possibly that Jesus was born around the Feast of Trumpets. We can only speculate that he may have been born on the Feast of Trumpets. We can't prove that one one way or another. But we do know that based on the particular uh, division of Abijah that... uh, that, of course, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, was involved in, that we can calculate roughly when Jesus was born. And he would have been born within two weeks, either side of the Feast of Trumpets. I'll refer you to the question and answers on the Tomorrow's World magazine, November, December 2005. I'll just read a section of it. 
Scripture, however, gives us some hints about the date of Christ's birth, telling us that he was born when there were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That's Luke 2, verse 8. During the cold Judean winters, shepherds slept indoors. We also read that while Zacharias was serving at the temple in the division of Abijah, an angel appeared to him and announced that he would have a son, John the Baptist. That's Luke 1, verses 5 through 25, and Luke 1, verses 57 and 58. The division of Abijah was the eighth to serve each year, and by calculating the dates forward, we find that John the Baptist was born near Passover in the spring, and Jesus was born six months later. Remember when Mary visited uh, Elizabeth, uh, she was about six months pregnant. You can read that in Luke 1, verses 24 through 26, which would place his birth in September or October, not on December 25th. So you can read that Q&A on Tomorrow's World magazine, November, December 2005, or just go on the Tomorrow's World website in the search search field and put in... Um, Christians, should Christians observe Christmas or Christ's birth? And you can find the Q&A uh, for that particular magazine, Tomorrow's World, November, December 2005. So Jesus was born either on the Feast of Trumpets or on either side of the Feast of Trumpets. And the Bible, that is the writer Luke, gives us a long chapter, actually parts of two chapters that rejoice in the birth of the Messiah. This was prophesied throughout the prophets for many decades and actually millennia. But let's take a look at a time when the world says, well, you don't, you don't rejoice in the birth of Christ. Well, yes, we do. We take a look at the fulfillment of prophecy. That's wonderful. And the Messiah did come as prophesied according to the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel, the ninth chapter. But let's take a look at Luke. And on this Feast of Trumpets, rejoice at the first coming of Christ. Luke 1, we find how God inspired uh, so many individuals at that particular period of time. Let's take a look first at Luke 1 and verse 44. I mentioned how uh, Mary had visited uh, Elizabeth. And here in verse 44, the uh, Elizabeth tells Mary, Luke 1 verse 44, For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded to my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And then Mary, the mother of Jesus, begins to give this inspired speak, inspired treatise of the nation of Israel and how God is going to send a deliverer and a Savior for Israel. How could she speak under inspiration? Obviously, she had studied the prophecies. She'd known the prophecies. And, of course, it says then in verse 56, Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Then John the Baptist is born. And then later on, chapter 2, Jesus is born. And he's presented at the temple in Luke, the second chapter. And Simeon, verse 25 of Luke 2, comes to the temple. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. What an awesome privilege Simeon had to know that he was going to see the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, before he would die. So he came by spirit to the temple, verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, he took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, can you imagine that you as an elderly man are holding the Messiah in your arms? What an inspiring, awesome time that would have been. 
Simeon says in verse 29 of Luke 2, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and glory of your people Israel. And then Anna uh, bears witness to the Redeemer. And just inspiring comment after inspiring comment of Christ's first coming. Of course, Herod was not all that pleased. He slew all the children two years old to kill Jesus. And, of course, uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus escaped to Egypt and uh, returned later. So how was Jesus greeted? Later on, of course, in age 12, he went to Jerusalem and and um, all of the doctors of the law marveled at his understanding and his questions. But later, before he was crucified, he came in and went to Jerusalem, what is called the triumphal entry. In Luke, uh, the 19th chapter, um, we find that Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And uh, Zacchaeus was a short man. He wanted to see who Jesus was, climbed a tree. And uh, Jesus said, I'm coming to your home, uh, Zacchaeus, today. Uh, Luke, the 19th chapter. Here we find the parable of the the nobleman. And in verse 14 of Luke 19, how did the people greet the nobleman in this parable? Luke 19, verse 14. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. What a terrible response to the king, the king of the Jews who came to his own people. And they rebelled. And so it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, verse 15. He then commanded these servants to whom he had given money to be called to him that he might know how every man gained by trading. And again, we have the uh, parable of the minas, which we uh, mentioned earlier. And starting with verse 28, you have the section of the triumphal entry, as it's called, in Luke, the 19th chapter. And so Jesus found this, uh, had this colt and uh, sat on it. And as he came into Jerusalem, what happened? Verse 36 of Luke 19. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They welcomed the king when he came to Jerusalem. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they were saying. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, because they thought, well, they're just praising this man. They shouldn't be doing that. But Jesus answered and said to them in verse 40, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Here was the Messiah, the Creator, the King of Jerusalem, the King of Salem the one who was Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the king of the Jews coming into Jerusalem. If these would keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side. He was talking about the tribulation that was to come when Titus and his army surrounded Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And Rome and the Roman legions destroyed the city and a million people died in that, in that preview of the great tribulation. But yes, his disciples welcomed him and praised him as he came into Jerusalem. Like the true church welcoming Christ, we need to bless and praise Christ when he comes. You know, sometimes we cheer for sports teams and cheer for um, the accomplishments of, of others in athletics. Do we really praise and, and rejoice in the coming of Christ? Will we greet him? But how did the... Uh, Pharisees and the others greet him. 
It's his response, Luke, the 20th chapter. What did they say? And this is the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Verse 14 certainly applied to those in Jerusalem. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyards do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. So again, he quotes from the Scriptures, verse 17, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And those who rebelled against him will be ground to powder, as it says in verse 18. So how were they greeted? How was Christ greeted? He was crucified by his enemies, but he was welcomed and praised by his disciples. So brethren, we need to think about our relationship with the king. We think of uh, John, the 14th chapter, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many dwelling places or abodes or many mansions, as it is in the King James. He said, If I go, I will come again and receive you to, un, unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. We will spend our life as the bride of Christ, as his disciples, as his brothers and sisters, begotten of the Father, with Jesus Christ the Messiah. We will marry him. We will be a part of his family, God's family forever. So we think of Jesus Christ as the one who is coming, coming as King of kings and Lord of lords. What is our attitude towards his coming? The Apostle Paul, before he died, wrote this in Second Timothy, the fourth chapter. You can turn to Second Timothy, the fourth chapter. I think you're familiar with this particular verse, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 6. Paul knew he was about to die, and uh, so he was reflecting on his life and on his future. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And brethren, there's no higher honor than can be paid to one of our saints, our brothers and sisters who sleep in Jesus, who have died, that they died in the faith. That's a high honor. The Apostle Paul says, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Yes, God tells us he's giving us a crown. We're going to be king of he, God. Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords. And he tells the Philadelphians, let no man take your crown in Revelation, the third chapter. Here in uh, 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That needs to be our attitude. And we will be with the Apostle Paul if we're faithful. We meet Christ in the air, and then we go to the wedding and the marriage supper before God's throne. You can read that in Revelation 7, verses 15 through 17, and Revelation 15, 2, where we're on the sea of glass before God's throne. Let's turn to Revelation, the 14th chapter. Yes, we will ever be with the Lord, as we read in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here in Revelation 14 and verse 4, here is the vision that the Apostle John has of the Lamb and the 144,000. And verse 4 of Revelation 14, These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Not necessarily physically virgins, but, of course, spiritual virgins. And you find that jealousy that God has towards his people, that they should not be fellowshipping and, that is, indulging in the ways of the world, as warning in James, the fourth chapter. These are the ones, listen to this, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. If Jesus is with God the Father, we will be with God the Father. We will follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men 
being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. <clears throat> and in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So Christ comes for the saints, as we read at the announcement of Revelation eleven fifteen, the resurrection to glory in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4. We meet Christ in the air. We go to the wedding supper and the, we have the wedding. And then we return with Christ in Revelation, the 19th chapter. But let me just show you, and I think most of you are aware of the sequence of events, how we are to prepare for the coming of Christ, how we are to meet him. This is the booklet, Armageddon and Beyond. One way of preparing to meet the king is to know the sequence of prophetic events. This particular chart in the middle of Armageddon and beyond again shows you the three and a half years leading up to the return of Christ. There are two and a half years of the great tribulation, then the heavenly signs, and then the day of the Lord, which you've heard about in other sermons. The day of the Lord consists of the seven trumpets. It's the seventh seal. And in one sense, of course, the day of the Lord goes beyond that into eternity. But the primary application of the day of the Lord is that one year before the return of Christ. And then, of course, at the end of that, the seven last plagues and Armageddon that is mentioned in Revelation, the 16th chapter and verse 16. So the saints follow him wherever he goes. Now let's turn to Revelation, the 19th chapter, Revelation 19. Yes, Christ comes for the saints, and then he comes with the saints as described in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 and verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. That's one of God's characteristics. He is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Meditate on that verse, brethren. Think about it. The wife is now making herself ready. And we've given those particular characteristics of preparation that we make sure we have oil in our lamps, that we are watchful that we know the sequence of events, and we're stirring up the gift of God's Spirit. Be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, he comes back with an army. As I mentioned in my sermon, who is Jesus? There are false doctrines out there that say that Michael is Jesus and vice versa. And that because Michael comes with angels, with an army of angels, and Jesus comes with an army of angels, they must be the same. No, Jesus comes with an army of saints. Let's read that here in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. Again, two more <clears throat> appellations and names and titles of Christ. And he is in righteousness, judges, and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his heads were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who is this army? Are they angels? Well, the context here is, of course, the bride of Christ. And notice in verse 8, as we already read, who is arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright? It's the saints. It's the bride of Christ. It's the wife of Christ. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. That's us, those who will be in the first resurrection. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, <clears throat> that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, he is king of kings. God has called us to be kings and priests and judges. And we'll talk more about that at the Feast of Tabernacles when we realize our calling, that we will be called to educate and re-educate the earth to the way of truth, the way of peace, and the way of righteousness. Then, of course, the armies are gathered, the beast and the kings of the earth, verse 19, to fight against him. And, of course, when you read the battle of the great day of God Almighty in Revelation 16, you see that this takes place between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Then we find out that the beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Verse 20, and the rest were killed with a sword. Verse 21, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with his flesh. So what is the time setting of this? When does this happen? It happens between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Because what happens next? Revelation 20, we find out that the dragon, the serpent of old who is the devil and Satan, is bound by an angel in verse 1 and verse 2 of Revelation 20 and bound him for a thousand years. That takes place on the Day of Atonement. That's on the 10th day of the seventh month. So all of these events happen in a very short period of time between the first day of the seventh month and the 10th day of the seventh month. At the Feast of Trumpets, Christ comes for the saints. And just before the Day of Atonement, Christ comes with the saints, as we saw in Revelation 19. The seven last plagues, including Armageddon, Revelation 16, take place starting with the Feast of Trumpets and ending with the Day of Atonement. I hope most of you have read thoroughly Mr. John O'Gwen's booklet, Revelation, the Mystery Unveiled. Notice this on page 42, and I hope you read this. Just as the Feast of Trumpets represents the time of God's intervention and judgment, we're observing that day today. Let me read that again. I need to take a sip of uh, tea here. This is page 42 of Revelation, the mystery unveiled. Just as the Feast of Trumpets represents what? The time of God's intervention and the day of judgment. So the day of atonement, coming nine days later, pictures a time when Satan will be banished and made to bear his responsibility for sin. The fulfillment of what this day symbolized is described in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. We just read a part of that. Most likely, listen to this, the action that is described in the book of Revelation as occurring between the blowing of the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11:15 and the putting away of Satan in Revelation 20, verse 2, will take place in a nine-day span between trumpets and atonement. Satan being put away will represent the liberation of mankind. This is the fulfillment of the symbolism of the ancient year of Jubilee when freedom was proclaimed, Leviticus 25, verses 9 through 10. So, brethren, this has been in our booklet for many uh, years now that the these last events, the seven last plagues, occur between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. We will come back with Christ, as it shows here in Revelation, the 19th chapter. Satan will be put away, and then begins the transition of the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. Christ will put down all his enemies over a period of time. He will establish the new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as it says in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews, the 8th chapter. We are living in exciting end times, and we understand the sequence of events leading up to the coming of Christ because we keep the annual festivals. The Feast of Trumpets pictures the day of the Lord, the time of God's judgment on the nations. It also is the time when the first resurrection takes place, when the saints will be changed from mortal to immortal, and we will be born into the family of God as glorified, immortalized children of God. We are preparing to meet the king and to reign with him a thousand years. Will you welcome him with open arms? 
with praise and with joy. Moses spoke with God face to face, the one who became Christ. Jacob wrestled with the eternal. Abraham prepared a meal for the eternal. Adam hid from the Lord. The kings of the east, when you read in Luke and Matthew, the Magi brought kings and brought gifts, that is, to the newborn king. And children praised the Messiah and his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You can read that in Matthew 21.9. And Jesus said, if the disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out at his coming there in Jerusalem. But the people of Jerusalem cried out for his crucifixion. And Jesus still prayed for them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. God is preparing us for great responsibilities in his royal family. The kingdom is coming. Pray that the kingdom will come. Prepare to meet the king. When we prepare for to meet the king, we look forward to the wedding and the wedding supper. How do we prepare to meet the king? We must always have oil in our lamps. We must be alert and watchful. We need to ask God for his spirit, because as a father who knows how to give good things, he will give to us the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. We need to stir up God's Holy Spirit, as Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 1 in verse 6. Let's turn to four final scriptures, starting Colossians the third chapter, Colossians, the third chapter, and verse 1. Looking forward to our transformation from mortal to immortal. Colossians, the third chapter, and starting with verse 1. If you then are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. When you come boldly before the throne of grace, you know that your high priest, your Savior, is at the right hand of God, and you're coming to that throne of grace in his name, in his authority. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Of course, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, talk about the old man and the new man. We were buried in baptism, as you read in Romans, the sixth chapter. But we came up out of the water to walk in newness of life. Verse 3, Colossians 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will no longer have the pain and suffering of this physical mundane body. We will have a glorified body. We will appear with him in glory. Turn to Revelation, the First no, Thessalonians 4. Again, I, we've read it twice, but I think it's appropriate that we read it once again to understand that we are preparing for the greatest event since creation, since Christ's sacrifice, and that is the return of Christ to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, First Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, and verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend with heaven from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We look forward to that time when we will always be with him. Revelation 22, verse 20. I ask this question often. What is the last verse of the Bible? This is the next to the last verse in the Bible, but it shows the attitude of the Apostle John towards looking forward to the time when Christ would return. Revelation 22 and verse 20. He, the capital H-E, meaning Christ, who testifies to these things, says, Surely I am coming quickly. And what is John's response? What should be your response? What should be my response? 
Amen. John writes, even so, come Lord Jesus. We pray that the kingdom comes. We pray that Christ will come back. And we pray that we will be close to him, that we will look forward to meeting him when he comes. And then verse 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And one final scripture, we read it before, but we'll close with this one. Revelation, the 19th chapter. Remember, let's be sobered, brethren, by the seven judgment judgments or the seven trumpet judgments and the day of the Lord pictured by the Feast of Trumpets. And let's rejoice that Christ is preparing the church. He's preparing a converted bride to rule with him forever. Well, let's look forward to the time when we hear this heavenly announcement, Revelation 19 and verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Brethren, let's prepare. Let's prepare with joy and faith to meet the Lord, our Savior, and our King. Let's meet him with joy and faith. Prepare to meet the King.